beautiful boys and girls, and welcome to Avant-Garde Book Storytime. I am Cherie Hardy, and I'm so happy to be reading to you today. Today, I am going to be reading the story of John Lewis, a biography book for new readers. This book was written by Tanya Leslie, Ph.D., and illustrated by Gerard K. Polk. If you have this book, just follow along with me. If you don't, no problem. Just get in a comfortable place, get relaxed, and listen quietly to the story of John Lewis. Chapter 1, A Hero is Born. When John Lewis was young, a young boy, he was in charge of the chickens on his family's farm. He cared for them all and even named them. When he got older, he became a civil rights leader and a U.S. congressman. He spent most of his life speaking out against injustice. John Lewis was raised in an unfair America. When he was young, black and white people lived separately and unequally. John spent his life fighting to change that, but he fought peacefully. When people yelled, John stayed silent. While others raised their fists, John lowered his hands. When people yelled out bad words, John sang out freedom songs. It is not easy to stand up for peace, especially when others act with violence. John knew that fighting for equality was dangerous. He was beaten, kicked, and spat upon. He was jailed more than 40 times. Still, he stood his ground. He held on to his belief that people should be treated equally. People around the world watched his bravery and they joined in to help. John Lewis never stopped fighting for justice and he never stopped believing in peace. John's America. John Lewis was born on February 21, 1940 in a small farming community in Alabama. He lived near the city of Troy. He came from a big family. He was the third of 10 children. Most of his neighbors were family too. John spent his early life never meeting a stranger. John's family had worked on the farm since the days of slavery. White Americans in the South enslaved black people and forced them to work for free. After slavery ended in 1865, many laws and unfamiliar practices, unfair practices were put in place to keep black people down. One unfair practice was sharecropping. White landowners rented land to black farmers. Then, at the end of the growing season, they shared the harvest. But the white landowners often took more than their fair share. They left the farmers with almost nothing. No matter how hard the black farmers, like John's family, worked, they barely made enough to live on. Black and white people lived separate lives. Their children went to different schools. There were some places black people couldn't go at all. When John tried to go to the library, he was told that it was for white people only. This was called segregation. Myth. If sharecroppers worked harder, they could have made it. Fact. Sharecropping was unfair and racist. Even when black farmers tried to fight back, the laws protected the white landowners. Even as a child, John could see that this way of life was unfair. John decided that he needed to fight for a better world. Chapter 2, The Early Years Preaching to the Chickens John's parents, Eddie and Willie May, eventually bought a farm of their own. Now John's family had 110 acres of land. They planted cotton, corn, and peanuts. 
They also had their own animals. Farming was hard work for the whole family, and everyone had to do their part. John's job was to take care of the chickens. He had to feed them and make sure their eggs were kept warm and safe. John felt a special connection to the chickens. John wanted to be a pastor, so sometimes he preached to them. Some nodded their heads, others looked at John with curiosity. The chickens couldn't talk, but John knew they were listening. Besides the chickens, John also loved school, but there was a lot of work on the farm. Sometimes John and his brothers and sisters needed to stay home to help. John begged to go to school. He told his family how far he would fall behind. His parents felt bad, but they had no choice. Everyone had to help out. One morning, John had an idea. He hid under the front porch and waited. When he saw the bus, school bus, coming down the road, he rushed from his hiding place and ran to the bus. He got on and went to school. John's parents weren't happy, but they didn't punish him. They knew how much he liked school. This was John's first protest. Separate is not equal. John didn't know how many white people know many white people when he was growing up. He used he was used to segregation. When he went to school, he saw that white children rode on a newer bus and had a better school building. Even though he loved his school and his teachers, this didn't seem fair. John would ask his family why things were this way. They would say, that's just the way it is. Then one day, John went on a trip to Buffalo, New York with his uncle Otis. They were going to visit family who lived in the north. As they drove through the southern states, they didn't stop much. They couldn't because of segregation. They were not allowed in some of the restaurants they passed. They could get harassed or hurt. So John and Otis ate in the car. Things were different in Buffalo. John noticed that his uncles there had white neighbors. White and black people sat together and were friends. John realized that segregation didn't have to be the way things were. All around the world was changing. In 1954, a big decision was passed in the courts. It was called Brown versus Board of Education. In the decision, the court said that schools could no longer be segregated. John was excited. He thought this meant that he would be able to go to a better school. But change didn't come right away. In fact, a lot of things got worse. In 1955, a 14-year-old boy named Emmett Till was murdered in Mississippi. His crime? Talking to a white woman. Myth? After the Brown court decision, black and white children went to school together right away. Fact, it took many years and a lot of hard work to desegregate schools. No one was punished for his murder. Emmett's mother was so hurt and angry, she decided the world needed to see what was done to her son. A funeral photo of Emmett was published in a magazine. People couldn't believe what they saw. The country was outraged about his murder. John was too. He wondered how he could make a difference. John heard a speech by a pastor named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and was inspired. He thought that if he became a preacher, he could reach people. Maybe he too could fight for change like Dr. King. Chapter 3. Time to Take a Stand. Faith and Courage. School segregation was finally against the law, but other types of segregation continued. Black and white people still couldn't eat in the same restaurants. In parts of the South, black people had to ride on the backs of buses. 
If a white person wanted a seat, black passengers had to stand up. In 1955, in Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks refused to stand up to let a white man sit down. This act of courage sparked a year-long bus boycott. The Montgomery bus boycott was America's first large protest for civil rights. Meanwhile, John pushed for change in his own way. He preached his first public sermon. The audience was filled with people, not chickens. Because he was only 15 years old, the story was covered in the newspaper. Then he learned about a school in Nashville, Tennessee, called the American Baptist Theological Seminary. It helped black people become ministers. John applied and was accepted after high school. The school was far from home. He had to work hard to pay for his classes. He loved learning, but he wanted to help his community. He wanted to fight for justice. Then John had an idea he would apply to Troy University. It was a good school and close to his family. If he went to Troy, he could move home. But Troy didn't allow black students. John wanted to desegregate the school. He knew he couldn't do it alone. So he wrote to ask Dr. King for help. Then he waited. One day he got a letter from Dr. King. The minister wanted to meet John, the boy from Troy. John went to Montgomery to meet Dr. King. When he got there, Dr. King asked, are you the boy from Troy? He had read the newspaper article about John's sermon. John couldn't believe Dr. King already knew who he was. Dr. King wanted to help John desegregate the university. They would need lawyers and it would cost money. It was also dangerous. John could get hurt. His family could lose their jobs. Their homes might be bombed. It had happened before. John thought about it the whole ride home. What should he do? John talked with his family. They wanted to support him, but they were worried. John did not want to put them in danger, so he wrote to Dr. King. It was a hard choice, but he would not try to desegregate Troy University after all. Instead, he went back to school in Nashville. John was disappointed, but he didn't know that this decision would change his life forever. John met a man named James Lawson Jr. James taught people about nonviolent protests. Nonviolence means working for change peacefully. Myth, being nonviolent is easy. Fact, staying nonviolent takes a lot of practice. It is especially hard when people are being violent. Rosa Parks started a nonviolent protest when she would not give up her seat. John liked the idea of nonviolence. He couldn't imagine hurting anyone. He didn't even want to hurt his chickens. But nonviolence is not easy, especially when others are violent toward you. John met other students who wanted to use peace to fight for change. They were men and women, black and white. They decided to desegregate the lunch counters in their town. They practiced for months. Finally, they were ready to act. Chapter 4. Peaceful Protests Lunch Counter Sit-Ins John and the other students were ready to launch their first peaceful protest. They organized a sit-in. The plan? They would sit down at a lunch counter. Then, when workers refused to serve them, they would not leave. They would just sit quietly until the store closed. The next day, they would come back and do it again. At first, the white store owners were confused. Then they got mad. They tried to get the protesters to leave. They yelled horrible things and tried to pull them off the stools. They beat John and the others and dumped food on their heads. The police came, but they arrested the protesters. It was John's first arrest. Even though John and the other protesters were in jail, 
The sit-ins continued. When other students heard what happened, they came out to protest too. Eventually, they formed an organization called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. Three lawyers agreed to help John and the others at no charge. When the protesters got out of jail, they began to plot their next move. Then one night, they got a call. The house of one of their lawyers had been bombed. Luckily, no one was hurt, but the violence had gone too far. Finally, the mayor said that the lunch counter should be desegregated. On May 10, 1960, Nashville lunch counters served black customers for the first time. The protesters had won one battle, but there was still more to do. Freedom Rise. The SNCC continued continue their protests around the South. They protested segregation in movie theaters and restaurants. Other organizations joined in too. A group called the Congress of Racial Equality, or reached out to John. They had a plan for a protest called Freedom Rides. The Freedom Rides wanted to end segregation in bus stations. The waiting rooms and restrooms in bus stations in the South still didn't allow black people. The law said they had to, but it was, was not usually enforced. John traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet the Freedom Riders, led by a man named James Farmer. The group spent weeks preparing for their protest. Then on May 4, 1961, John and the rest of the protesters began their bus ride. The Freedom Riders were a mixed group of black and white. Their plan was to go into bus station waiting spaces together. The law said they had the right to do that. They wanted to see if the law was being enforced. At their first stop in the South, they tried to enter the station together. They were attacked. The riders kept going, but a terrible thing happened. While John was away for a day, the Freedom Riders bus was bombed. The riders escaped only to be beaten by an angry mob. John worried about his friends. It could have been him on that bus. Myth, random people attacked the Freedom Riders. Fact, attacks were often organized by members of the Ku Klux Klan. KKK, a white supremacist organization. James Farmer called off the rides. It was too dangerous. But Diane Nash, a member of the SNCC, said no. Protesters like herself and John would never give up. They would continue to fight against nonviolence wherever they found injustice. Chapter 5, The Struggle for Equal Rights, March on Washington. The fight for equal rights continued. Protests were happening all across the South. Violence against peaceful protesters was caught on video and shown on the news. Many people were hurt, including children. John escaped death several times, but he didn't let that stop him. He continued to peacefully protest. He was arrested 24 times. People saw that he was a leader. In 1963, he was asked to become chairman of the SNCC. John was just 23 years old. He felt emotion about all the violence in, his, in the country. He worried about his safety and the safety of his friends. Still, he agreed to leave the organization. Later that year, an organizer named Philip A. Philip Randolph came up with the idea of a march in support of jobs for black Americans. He wanted to make a big statement. He asked five other civil rights leaders for help. Martin Luther King Jr., James Farmer, Roy Wilkins, Whitney Young, and John. The group became known as the Big Six. John was the youngest member. 
The march was called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. On August 28, 1963, about a quarter of a million people gathered under the Lincoln Memorial to hear the speakers. Dr. King delivered his famous, I Have a Dream speech. Before Dr. King went on, John gave his own speech. At first, he was nervous, but then he spoke strongly. He felt hopeful that things would change. The good feelings didn't last long. Just two weeks later, a bomb in a Birmingham church killed four little girls. When Dr. King spoke at their funeral, 8,000 mourners came together. Then in November, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. It was a huge loss, and the country was in pain. Kennedy believed in equal rights for everyone. He had been working on a civil rights bill. The new president, Lyndon Johnson, followed his lead. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed the next year, Bloody Sunday. John wanted to learn about how other black people around the world were working to get equal rights. In 1964, he went to Africa to learn about how black people there were struggling. Their fight was different, but there were many similarities. John learned a lot and felt ready to fight more in the United States. He and the SNCC team decided to focus on voting rights next. Though black people had the right to vote, it was very hard for them to register. Sometimes they had to take unfair tests. Other times they were met with threats and violence. John knew that until black people could vote for leaders who would fight for them, nothing would change. The vote is precious. It is almost sacred. It is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have in a democracy. On March 7, 1965, John helped organize a march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. John knew he could get arrested, so he prepared a backpack with a few things he might need in jail, like a book, a toothbrush, a toothpaste, and an apple and orange. Dr. King was supposed to lead the march, but he was delayed, so John led it. They walked over the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma in a peaceful line, but the police were waiting on the other side. The police attacked. The protesters were beaten with clubs and sprayed with tear gas. John was hit in the head and fell to the ground bleeding. Meanwhile, reporters recorded what happened. The attack appeared on TV that night. This event became known as Bloody Sunday. The videos caused the nation to respond. After Bloody Sunday, leaders came to Selma to march. On March 21st, Dr. King led about 25,000 protesters from Selma to Montgomery. John was still healing from his injuries, but he marched too. They walked 50 miles over five days. This time it worked. President Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 into law. Black voters' rights were now protected. Chapter 6, Activist to Politician the new way forward. In 1966, John decided it was time to leave SNCC. He was still committed to the civil rights movement. However, he went back to school. His life became all about studying and working. Then he met Lillian Miles at a New Year's Eve party. Lillian was a librarian at Atlanta University. She shared John's passion for civil rights and they grew close. Then Dr. King was assassinated on April 4, 1968. John was devastated. He had spent so much time working with Dr. King, his heart was broken. But as always, he sprang into action. He put everything he had 
into the presidential campaign of Robert Bobby Kennedy. Bobby was running for president, just like his brother. People hoped that Bobby would take up the work his brother started, but the violence continued. On June the 6th, 1968, Bobby was assassinated too. Never ever be afraid to make noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. John had seen so many of his friends and freedom fighters die. How much more could he take? John decided that there had to be one good thing to happen in 1968. So on December 21st, 1968, he and Lillian were married. They welcomed a new year of hope together. Congressman John Lewis. John and Lillian continued the fight for civil rights and John continued to work on voter registration. In 1970, he took over as the director of the Voter Education Project. He helped register millions of voters. One of the first things he did was create a poster to inspire people. It showed two strong black hands. One hand was pulling cotton and the other was casting a ballot. It said, hands that pick cotton now can pick our public officials. More than 10,000 posters were made and distributed throughout the South. Meanwhile, his personal life was also beginning to change. In 1976, John and Lillian adopted their son, John Miles Lewis. Then John's friends and family asked him to consider taking on a new role. He had always fought for voters' rights. What if he was the person people could vote for? In 1977, John ran to become a U.S. congressman. He lost the election. Instead, he took on a new role. President Jimmy Carter appointed him to run a government program called ACTION. The program organized volunteers across the country. In 1981, John ran for a seat on the Atlanta City Council and won. He held that seat until 1986. Then he decided to run for Congress again. This time, he won. Chapter 7, We Shall Overcome Someday. Equality for All People. John Lewis was elected to Congress on November the 4th, 1986. He was re-elected 16 times, serving almost 35 years. During that time, he continued to get into good trouble, fighting for what's right. He led peaceful protests while in Congress. He even got arrested. In 2016, there was a deadly shooting in Florida. John was angry. He wanted Congress to pass laws that would make it harder for people to get guns. He protested by leading a 24-hour sit-in on the floor of Congress. People began to recognize John for his important work. In 2001, he received the John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award for protecting the rights of all people. In 2011, he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama. That's one of the highest honors an American can get. Meanwhile, John wrote books about his life. He even wrote a graphic novel. But it wasn't all celebrations for John. In 2012, he lost his beloved wife, Lillian. He was very sad, but he continued to work hard. In 2015, he led a march back across the bridge in Alabama, where he almost lost his life. The march honored the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. He remained, reminded the crowd that it took three tries to get across the bridge before change happened. Every generation leaves behind a legacy. What that legacy will be is determined by the people of that generation. 
What legacy do you want to leave behind? Then in 2019, he got bad news. He had cancer. As usual, this didn't stop John. He decided he would fight cancer. He said, I have been in some kind of fight for freedom, equality, basic human rights for nearly my entire life. Spirit of peace, power of love. In June 2020, John made his last public appearance. He visited Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C. Protests had broken out across the United States after a black man named George Floyd was killed by a police officer. John joined the protest. He wore a mask because the world was dealing with a deadly virus. A few weeks later, John died on July 17, 2020. After he passed away, the newspaper published an essay he had written. It explained why he had been at the protest for George Floyd. He wrote, I just had to see and feel it for myself that, after many years of silent witness, the truth is still marching on. He was honored in Washington, D.C. A double rainbow appeared in the sky before his funeral. Many people came out to remember John Lewis at his funeral, even though the virus was still around. Everyone wore masks to stay safe. Three former presidents talked about working with him, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush. They told stories of all the good trouble he had he got into during his life. They talked about how important peace was to John. They even remembered his chickens. The youngest speaker was 12-year-old Tyree Fall. He had become friends with John two years earlier. He read one of John's favorite poems and said, Let's honor him for getting into good trouble. John's funeral took place in the church where Dr. King had been a pastor. Then his casket was taken across the Edmund Pettus Bridge one last time. A newspaper published his final words. He told people to vote and said, Though I am gone, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand for what you truly believe. Well, that was, boys and girls, the story of John Lewis. It was written by Tanya Leslie, Ph.D., and illustrated by Gerard K. Polk. I hope you learned something about the great and honorable Mr. John Lewis. Take care, boys and girls. Goodbye.